from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Paul Hanley on December 19, 2016. Paul has published four books and more than 1,500 articles on the environment, agriculture, and other topics. He's been the environment columnist with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix since 1989. Paul is a recipient of the Canadian Environment Award, the Organic Connections Pioneer Organic Communicator Award, and the Miwasan Conservation Award. Paul's latest work is called Eleven, which discusses the impact of the projected 11 million people that will reside on this planet at the end of the century. We discuss his book in the interview. I started the interview by asking Paul where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is kind of in the middle of the great prairies, the great plains of North America. I grew up in a city, but the city was fairly small at that time, uh, maybe 75 to 100,000, something like that. So it was a good place to grow up. So they say a good place to raise a family, kind of relaxed, very little traffic, a very stable kind of community. What was the religious life like growing up for you? Oh, we were very devout Roman Catholics. In fact, my father operated a church supply store called Burns Hanley, and he had uh, six locations across Western Canada. And in Regina, our life really revolved a lot around his work, which was selling church goods to Catholic, mainly Catholic churches. And also, uh, I went to Holy Rosary School and Holy Rosary Cathedral. Our church was well, just three blocks away. So Catholicism was kind of like, the big thing in our life. And did you carry that through young adulthood? No, I didn't. I, I, I guess I was part of the kind of big changes that happened in the 60s. I guess in my teens, pretty much rejected my religious background as, you know, uncool and started exploring totally different ways of looking at the world. What age was that, Paul? I guess when I was probably around... 15 or so, started thinking quite differently, exposed to different people with different ideas, and started doing a lot of reading. Yeah, just went through various changes. Probably, I I guess I would say I became an atheist for several years. What was your parents' reaction to this transformation? Uh, they, They weren't too happy. I mean, I don't know if I exactly told them that, but, you know, it was kind of a difficult time, I think, for parents. There was this sudden, profound change in the way people were thinking. You know, I think a lot of it was quite positive, but there was a whole negative side. There was a whole drugs and rock and roll and free love and all that kind of thing, uh, which was, you know, maybe had a negative side to it. But there was positives in terms of kind of an expansion of awareness and consciousness, kind of a global consciousness, I think, was emerging, that young people were really 
connected to and also an awareness of nature and, and the environment, all these things, peace. These things really started to blossom at that time. A lot of people got involved and I was one of them. So describe for me your spiritual journey. I think I became an atheist and sort of a, I fancy myself kind of a Marxist type of thinking, but I probably didn't exactly know what I was talking about. But, you know, as part of the kind of hippie movement was the, was the whole attraction to Eastern religions, you know, meditation and yoga and all those kinds of things that were coming about. And after a couple of years, I think uh, I started to drift more that way and had kind of a religious awakening. Became very interested in the sort of the Eastern religions and philosophies, Buddhism and Hinduism and so on. And I studied those things uh, to a degree, although they were probably kind of the uh, versions that were filtered through hippie type of thinking. They seemed pretty exotic and interesting, and the Beatles were into it and so on, you know. So I went down that road. And then after a few years, I connected with uh, with the Baha'i faith. I liked that because it kind of combined Western and Eastern thinking. I don't know. I found it a little less pretentious than the kind of uh, New Age movement. And uh, it was also a way that I first started to connect with indigenous people, the indigenous people of our area, who were very much connected at that time with the Baha'i faith. There was, it was really hard to kind of make a bridge and connect to indigenous people because we really had a, an apartheid system in Canada that at least until 1960 or so, there was basically no connection at all between the indigenous people and uh, the settler type people like myself. Even First Nations people didn't live in, in the city at all. They weren't allowed to leave reserves. That all changed, and through the Baha'i faith, I started to make connections with indigenous people, and that was, that was quite inspiring, too. So how was it that you ran into the Baha'i faith? Actually, a friend of mine in high school, I was in grade nine, the first time I heard about it, his father had been a, was a university professor and was on an exchange program in Iran. And I asked him what it was like in Iran. And he, one of the things he mentioned was they had met these people called Baha'is and they liked them. And so I looked it up in an encyclopedia and I thought, oh, I like this. But I, I, I wasn't aware that it was a religion that was happening all over the world, including my own city. And it maybe took me, it's probably three, four, five years later that I actually met a Baha'i and found out that it was uh, also a local religion. At that point, then I, you know, I became quite interested, started reading the books and going to Baha'i events and that kind of thing. So when you looked it up in the encyclopedia and you said, I like this, what was it that you liked? As I recollect, it was uh, a fairly short passage, but it talked about how the Baha'i faith recognized all faiths as part of one revelation from God. At that time, I'd been thinking... Uh, I was a Catholic. Why do Christians sort of think we're the one true faith when there's hundreds of millions of Hindus and there's Buddhists and there's Muslims and so on? I saw it as very cultural centric to kind of see our religion as the one true religion. So when I saw the Baha'i faith, it said, well, hold it. 
why can't all the religions be true? They're different sort of expressions of a central concept. That really made sense to me. And I, I could see there was a real connection to the concepts of peace and so on that I was interested in. To be honest, I don't remember what all it said, but I, I remember saying, yeah, this is something I like. So you initiated contact with the Baha'is as a result of... Um... Well, not really. They kind of found me. I, How did that work? Well, I was living in a little town near near my city. I moved out there, and we, me and some friends formed what we called a commune. So we kind of lived together in a house and pulled all our resources and started to grow gardens and things like that. One day I came home, and there were a bunch of Baha'is sitting in my living room. They just showed themselves into the house which wasn't that odd at that time. And we started talking and they introduced me to the faith and somebody brought me a book and I read it and, you know, it took me a few years though. I, I, I did study it for a few years before I actually joined it. So what was it that was initially keeping you from becoming a Baha'i and then deciding that you wanted to take on this religion as your faith? Probably it's kind of a healthy dose of skepticism about organized religion. You know, I'd been in one, and I wasn't necessarily that positive about it. Uh, although I think later I kind of learned to appreciate the values that I had received from my Catholic upbringing and the, the kind of community around around the church that was, I think, mostly a very positive thing. I guess I saw some potential negatives just being part of an organized religion. wasn't too sure about that. But over time, I, I became quite impressed with things like the Baha'i administ administration, the concepts and the electoral system that it had. And so when I kind of started to say, wow, this is a model that could actually be useful for society, not just for, for this religion. Oh, I should mention another factor was I got married. I actually got married by a Unitarian minister because I wasn't a Baha'i yet. And then after we had our first child and my son will something about having having my first child kind of compelled me towards the faith because i uh, i was thinking you know we really have to do something to improve the world we're living in i could see so we're heading in some pretty seriously negative directions and i thought you know i think something like the baha'i faith which really looks at kind of a deep level of change a real change of culture changing ourselves as individuals, as families, and as communities, and ultimately the whole planet. I thought that was the direction to go. Had you already gone in the direction of being involved in the concerns of the environment by this time? Yeah, I did. I had. And I guess my interest in the faith and my interest in environmentalism and environmental activism and so on kind of developed together. I still remember this. I was out in a canoe with my cousin, and it was the day of the U.S. flight that landed on the moon. And everybody was very, you know, excited about that. And my cousin was in an ecology course, and he started talking about one of the first things we were doing as we went to the moon for the first time was leaving a bunch of junk up there. And he started talking about sort of systems theory and how we should think of the Earth and the Moon as one unit, and uh, it was all the, all kinds of ideas I'd never thought of before. I remember that conversation was the thing that really kind of influenced me 
to explore the environmental movement. And he suggested some books by, one was uh, a book called Earth Household by the American poet and essayist Gary Snyder. And that was very, very influential for me, Earth Household being a kind of play on that term ecology. So I started thinking about those things. And at the same time as I was starting to be connected and influenced by the Baha'i faith. So the the kind of religious transformation I went through in my thinking about environmental environmental issues happened sort of simultaneously. And you yourself have written a few books about the environment. I have. And the first one I'd like to talk about is the one that's called Earth Care Ecological Agriculture in Saskatchewan. Basically, editor and co-author. Yeah, that book came out in 1980, and it was kind of the culmination of work I did with a group called Earth Care, which was a seminar started at the University of Regina, where we were basically exploring deep ecology ideas, biodynamic farming, the works of Rudolf Steiner, the Austrian philosopher, and just talking about agriculture and Part of that process, we built up a network of people who were interested in organic farming, organic gardening in Saskatchewan. I remember there was just one certified organic farmer in Saskatchewan. And by the way, we now have the most, something like 1,500, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500. It depends on various things like the market for organic food. So it's one of the biggest organic farming movements in North America for sure in our home province. So I was involved in kind of uh, building a network, I guess, of people who were interested. During that time, we built up a lot of information and started to do a lot of research on both the uh, what farmers were doing and also what information was there in the research community about uh, ecological agriculture. And then I was able to work on that book with a few other people, and it came out in 1980. And actually... It became a regional bestseller and sold around the world because it was one of the first books that dealt with dry land organic agriculture, I think. Now, what do you mean by dry land organic agriculture? I guess Saskatchewan and most of the, at least the northern Great Plains and prairie provinces are are really quite dry. It's basically a semi-arid area. So we would get, if we do it in inches, it would be uh, maybe 15 inches of precipitation a year or something in that neighborhood, more or less, depending which part of the region you're in. So it's very minimal precipitation. So the farming conditions are quite different than they might be if you were in, let's say, the southern U.S. or Ontario or where they have probably double the amount of, or even triple the amount of rainfall. The idea is to avoid situations like in California, which is also arid, but they heavily use the water resources to grow unsustainably, I think. Is, is, is... So we, we don't use much irrigation here. It is used to a limited degree, but not much. It's all kind of rainfall or precipitation dependent. Actually, a lot of it comes in the form of snow, so... It's cold here, too. Yesterday in the morning, it was 27 below centigrade. If, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term Chinook. It's a type of wind that comes in and warms up very quickly. 
So by the end of the day, it was one degree below. So that's a 26 degree Celsius temperature rise, which is like almost 50 degrees Fahrenheit in, a, mm, right. you know, just in a few hours. Yeah. So we're much happier today. <laughs> you wrote another book called The Spirit of Agriculture. Tell me, mm -hmm. tell me about that one. Yeah, I should say, first off, that I'm not really an agricultural expert. I'm a writer. So I basically take other people's ideas and try and put them in a format that uh, the average person can understand. This book, Spirit of Agriculture, was an attempt to kind of bridge my interest in ecological agriculture and the Baha'i faith and other religions, really. So what did religion really have to say about agriculture? And more specifically, what did the Baha'i faith have to say? Because well, one of the things I found quite interesting about the Baha'i faith was it actually says a lot about agriculture. You know, since it was revealed in the 19th century, it's really the first a religion that came about in the industrial era. And so I found it quite interesting that it had so much to say about agriculture. So I, I've been exploring that for a number of years. I guess it was 2005, 2006, I put out that book. I'm the editor and I wrote two chapters, but it was written by 13 different people all around the world. I had an acreage of the country and it was off-grid, wood heat. But I was able to plug into through the telephone line into the internet, and so we we wrote the whole book together with people sending in chapters from all over the world. What are some of the connections between the Baha'i faith and agriculture that you could share with us today? Actually, Baha'u'llah, Baha'u'llah, who's the founder of the Baha'i faith, talked a lot about agriculture, and interestingly, he himself was really a farmer. He was a uh, I guess basically you'd call it kind of a, a landed noble in, in Iran, a very high-ranking noble in the country initially. His family had various villages and so on with farmers working for them. So he managed these farms and was you know, very aware of the conditions of agriculture at the time. In some of his tablets, which were basically letters that he wrote to various people, he talked about agriculture and how important it was. They called it a vital and important matter. And he said in, in other countries, agriculture had been developed, and in Iran, where he was living in Persia, that is what it was called at the time, it was very kind of backwards. And he, he promoted the idea of really kind of becoming involved in, in finding the best of what's going on all over the world and promoting it in his own country. He went on to talk more about agriculture and, and then his son, Abdu'l-Baha, who became the head of the Baha'i faith after his father died, talked about it even more extensively and wrote several long passages about the transformation of rural communities, about villages and, and how we could create infrastructure in villages to more effectively share food and agricultural resources. And, so it's actually quite an extensive discourse on this topic. Before we get into your most recent book called Eleven, I'd like to first explore your work as an environmental columnist for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. When did you start doing that? How often do you write the column and uh, what kind of topics do you cover? 
Well, I started writing that column in 1989. I wrote it weekly for 27 years. Fairly recently, I stopped doing it. I just uh, felt I'd been at it long enough and wanted to focus on some other things. Basically, I, I must have covered, you know, it was something like 1,500 articles I wrote for them. So I covered just about every imaginable <laughs> environmental issue. You know, I looked a lot at global issues and maybe what the local impacts, but also a lot at local and, and sort of regional issues as well. You know, as time went on, definitely a lot on issues like climate change and biodiversity, lots on agriculture and sustainability, energy use, transportation, buildings, you know, pretty well every issue that you can imagine, I think we touched on at some point. And you're also the recipient of a number of awards, including the Canadian Environment Award, the Miwasan Conservation Award, and the Organic Connections Pioneer Organic Communicator Award. I was wondering if you could explain the circumstances in which you received those awards. I developed a kind of a public profile because of writing in the in the local daily, and I actually wrote in for some time in the newspaper in the other city, major city in Saskatchewan, Regina, as well, as a spokesman for environmental issues. Between that and some of the books that I did and work I did in the organic farming movement, I got some recognition for that. Miwasan Conservation Award piqued my interest. What's the um, origination for that award? Well, the Miwasan, it's a Cree word. Miwasan is a, an organization in my city. There's a, a beautiful river that runs through the city and riverbanks. And so the whole kind of riparian zone, the river, and, and back away from the river was put under the authority of the Miwasan Valley Authority. So they're kind of the main conservation organization in our city and the somewhat the surrounding areas. So one of the many things they do, in addition to developing, you know, huge trail systems and nature centers and so on, they have this annual conservation award since they started. And at one point they, they gave it to me, I guess for the same things, really raising awareness of all the similar issues that they're concerned about with the public. And also, one of the things I did was write a history of the Miwasan Valley Authority at the 25-year mark. And so uh, they used that a lot in their uh, public relations. And I guess partly it was an appreciation for having done that. So your most recent book is called Eleven. Can you tell the listeners what this book is about and what moved you to write this book? Yeah, uh, well... It, pretty well relates to my, my newspaper column in a sense, because over the 27 years that I was working on that, and I guess back before that, another 10 years or so in the organic uh, farming movement and general interest in, in ecology, I guess the thing that really stood out for me was this idea that we'd come to a point where we had about 7 billion people in the world when I started writing this. All the environmental scientists were saying that our way of life, our economy is basically unsustainable. But then when I looked at the statistics, I, I saw that the United Nations uh, Population Office was predicting that the population would go to 11 billion by the end of this century. So 11 billion is sort of the, the origin of the title of the book. 
And that's a 50% increase in population. So, okay, hold it. We're already unsustainable at 7 billion. We're going to add 50% more people. Not only that, we're finding, you know, more and more people are becoming more affluent, becoming part of the consumer society and using all of these resources in a very unsustainable way. So our ecological footprint, the kind of impact of everything that we do on the environment, uh, all the emissions, all the consumption of resources was growing and growing. So we're obviously on some kind of a collision course with the future. And so the book is about those problems, but it's also about what we could do to make things better. And my view is that we really need a deep cultural change so that we're not so focused on things, on material things, and find a much more effective way to live happily and sustainably by perhaps focusing on the deeper values of of human life. There's a lot a lot of issues I deal with, you know, we'll, we'll kind of bring them up as we go on in this discussion. I just think that for each civilization, and I'm not thinking global civilization, peoples are at various stages in their development of their society. And it seems that these peoples have to go through a certain level of material prosperity, and then maybe start thinking about, well, what impact is this now going to have on my environment and thinking beyond just raising myself up to being able to have a materially sustainable life, and then think about, well, what about my environmental sustainability? And I'm thinking of countries like Vietnam, and Malaysia and China, where they're raising their standard of living for their people, which is indeed increasing their environmental footprint. But is there a way that people can raise their standard of living in these developing countries without having to have such a dramatic impact on their in the environment? Well, I think there is, and there's, there's various models of people who are doing that. I mean, I think that the uh, low-income countries or developing countries, I don't know if I like that word that much, it assumes that some countries are developed like ours, and I don't know if that's true. Some countries like China, interestingly, I think are moving much faster like the, the whole process that you, you just described is happening so much faster there than it did in a country like uh, Britain, where the process of industrialization takes place over a couple hundred years, maybe. And uh, Chinese are compacting it. But also, I think they're very quickly experiencing some of the problems that that entails. And a huge one for them is air pollution. Their cities are really suffering from air pollution. So they are really moving fast also into how can we protect the environment? And they're becoming world leaders in renewable energy, for example. One of the things that a, a lot of commentators talk about is how in many ways there's potential for some of these countries, let's say India, to kind of skip certain levels of development and go direct to, uh, let's say in the area of energy, 
Now, should we set up a huge energy grid with coal-fired power plants and so on, or should we go directly to a distributed system of power where you have thousands of sources of power, almost like an internet of power uh, with uh, renewable sources? It's very much like the idea of instead of building a huge infrastructure for telephones, you know, where telephone lines going everywhere, landlines go directly to cell phones, and you avoid a whole stage of development, a costly stage of development, and go direct to a more efficient system. So that can be done with energy as well. So there are some cases where that is occurring. But there's also some really interesting cases. An example is butane. Butane has this concept of gross domestic happiness instead of gross mm -hmm. domestic production. They're saying, you know, okay, based on our culture and our, our religious perspectives and so on, what's the best way to develop, to develop? Is it to have more staff like people in the West do? Or, again, can we kind of bypass that sort of typical stage and go direct to looking at what's the best way we can develop quality of life? It's kind of exciting to see, in some places, people experimenting with these things. And often at the municipal level, municipalities in various parts of the world, a lot of them in Europe, but also in Latin America and so on, are really developing very sophisticated transportation systems and so on, uh, urban designs that avoid some of the problems that we're finding in some of the major cities in the West and in China and so on. Well, it's good for people to hear that there are these positive movements because people may not be aware of it and may be discouraged. So that's a good thing. Yeah, and that's one of the ideas that I find is there's a lot of coherence between the Baha'i teachings and what I'm seeing in the environmental movement because the Baha'i concept is that there's kind of two forces working in the world. One is very destructive and disintegrative. So the world order is through various problems, like maybe extreme nationalism. We're starting to see some of these signs more lately of people kind of turning in on themselves and looking away from the international community, kind of rejecting immigration and different things like that. Certainly in the environmental area, very destructive, huge ecological footprints and all the impacts it's having on climate, biodiversity and so on. So these forces that are kind of tearing the world apart and disintegrating the social and ecological order. And on the other hand, there are integrative forces that are happening too. So Baha'u'llah in his writings and Abdu'l-Baha talked about this a lot, you know, starting in the 19th century, these different forces. And if you look at sort of the, the science of ecology, you basically see some very similar concepts of these forces which are tearing things apart and bringing things together. There's an interesting concept in ecology called panarchy theory, and it talks about these stages that societies go through that are kind of build up a lot of capital and then go into a, into a mode where they've overbuilt and then collapse and then restore themselves with different ways, you know, in an ecosystem like a forest or grassland. But actually, the same concept seems to be happening in human societies as well. There's many reasons to be very pessimistic about where we're going, but there's also reasons to be hopeful about the future. 
And so in my book 11, I talk about both of those. And I think, you know, people have said, well, I read your book and it's really depressing. <laughs> and I and I said, well, skip, you know, you could skip forward a ways into the book because they just read the first few chapters and, and where I really get into some of the really wonderful things that are happening around the world and the processes that are in, starting to take shape to bring about positive change in our society, our civilization, and our relationship to the natural world. Would you like to read an excerpt from your book? Uh, sure, I could. You know, what I think I'll do is just read right from the preface, because it kind of sets up what the book is about. Okay. So, here I go. One distinguishing characteristic of an intelligent person, observed Bertrand Russell, is that she or he can be emotionally moved by statistics. If any statistic ought to move us, it should be this. 11 billion people will crowd this planet by century's end, just one lifespan away. Truly absorbing its significance would move every one of us, not just emotionally, but to action. Russell, an early proponent of population control, was frustrated by people's reluctance to think through the implications of population growth. Mankind would rather commit suicide than learn arithmetic he quipped 50 years ago. We still avoid the topic today, though the population division of the United Nations has done the math for us. It projects various scenarios for future growth, depending on the average global fertility rate. If, for example, fertility were to remain constant in every country at 25 to 2010 levels, global population would exceed 27 billion by 2100. Fortunately, fertility is trending downward, and that doomsday scenario will be avoided. In the medium variant, considered the most likely scenario, world population is expected to increase to 8.1 billion in 2025 and 9.6 billion in 2050, before peaking just shy of 11 billion around 2100. Some 40 high-income countries will actually see population decrease. Most of the world's 3.7 billion new citizens will be born in low-income countries. Their combined population will rise from 5.9 billion to 9.6 billion in 2100. By 2100, the population of 35 countries, most in the lowest income range, are likely to triple. Among them, the populations of African nations are projected to increase fivefold. In 2100, Nigeria, 174 million people in 2013, will be the third most populous country in the world with a staggeringly high population of 914 million people. Nigeria is less than a tenth the size of China. Ultimately, zero population growth is the only sane and sustainable option. It will be achieved sooner or later, but the strong likelihood is it will not happen before some 11 billion souls are sharing this planet. The die is cast. But population is just half the story. The human ecological footprint, the impact we have on the planet through resource use and emissions, is also rising. It currently exceeds Earth's carrying capacity by 60%. While the sheer volume of Earth's natural capital may allow us to carry on as is for some time, to do so with 50% more people would mean that our collective ecological footprint in 2100 would exceed Earth's carrying capacity several times over. That alone would be untenable, but it gets worse. More nations, including the largest, 
have discovered the formula for affluence using an economic model that would dramatically deepen their footprint. More and more people will join the consumer class. That said, extreme inequality is not likely to disappear. Projections based on a business as usual scenario would see the world population and economy and consequently its ecological footprint rising to levels that could only lead to a social and ecological catastrophe. Despite mounting evidence of the gravity of the ecological threat and the arrival of hard consequences, floods, droughts, and fires, humanity persists in its strange slumber. But sleep will become impossible as we approach an 11 billion world. We are about to get a very loud wake-up call. Everything is going to change. As population and resources and resource pressures mount, change will affect each one of us at our core and will ultimately reshape our minds, our hearts, our values, our settlements, our homes, our work, our economy, our systems of governance. We're going to change so completely that future civilization will be barely recognizable. We are going to change because, faced with extinction, our better angels will prevail. So that's the positive outlook from what I'm hearing you read, Paul, is that is mankind is faced with this situation that they'll rise to the challenge to do the right thing to be able to have the planet live sustainably. That's right. Buckminster Fuller, I don't know if you remember him, he was a very popular thinker in the 60s and 70s, but he, what did he say that uh, human beings always do the most intelligent thing after they've tried every stupid alternative <laughs> and none of them have worked. So we learn from what we're doing, sometimes slowly, and there's a tendency to kind of keep doing the same things you've done before. But I think the pressures that will be created by rising population and our impacts on the planet will will really force us to change. And I think it's already happening. I mean, this whole issue with climate change is doing a number of things. I mean, I think it's raising consciousness, but it's also bringing people together at the international level. So the some of the agreements, the Paris Agreement on climate change and so on, see basically every country in the world agreeing in principle to make change. Now, actually doing it is, you know, there'll be definitely stops and starts. And I think the United States right now, you know, it looks like it might be into a, a stop period. We'll see what happens. But even that may ultimately trigger pressures that will, will really accelerate the process of change. The case I make in the book is that every one of the problems that we have is actually, if you kind of flip it, it's a, it becomes an opportunity to, to bring about some, some change. Now, I'm going to repeat, I think, a quote you had made, and then I'd like to uh, have you comment on it. The quote is, Baha'i-inspired capacity can help humanity adapt to environmental changes caused by population growth. For those who are not familiar with what the Baha'is are trying to do in the area of community building, maybe you could help explain this quote, and I'll repeat it again. Baha'i-inspired capacity building can help humanity adapt to environmental changes caused by population growth. So for those who aren't familiar with what the Baha'is are doing in the area of community building, 
maybe you could explain a little bit of what is meant by Baha'i inspired capacity building and then help us understand how that translates into environmental changes caused by population growth. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I, I talk about in, in my book is how all of these problems that we're facing as we, as we move in towards the end of the 21st century is really kind of demanding a really profound change in our culture, in our agriculture, and even perhaps even in human nature. The only way we can overcome these problems is to really kind of make this huge turnaround in the way we, we do our economy, where we govern ourselves, what our human values are, how we organize communities. So we're, we're really talking about a profound change, uh, which I make the case for in the book. You know, as, as a Baha'i, I'm looking at what the Baha'is are trying to do. And I don't want to kind of overstate that Baha'is have figured everything out. But what we're doing is really sort of launching this process of deep cultural change, beginning at the level of neighborhoods and villages. So what it's about is uh, trying to build an ability to sort of read your reality as a community, as individuals, to look at what your reality is, uh, analyze it, and then take measures, small measures, to change it in some way, and then kind of stop and reflect on what that process was like, and then, okay, well, let's read our reality again. We'll reflect together, and then what, what can we do to make our community a little better? once again. And often it involves working with children and also a very, I guess, impressionable group with a huge amount of potential is what they call junior youth, which is the 11 to 14 age group, but also working with adults and bringing people together to kind of look at the community and to access, I guess, uh, spiritual wisdom, science, you know, whatever tools we can to help bring about change. I see this happening, and there's a something called the Ruhi Institute, which started in rural Colombia, kind of started to take shape way back in the 1970s. And they were really looking at how can a religion really make concrete change. So, you know, sometimes our religious values, uh, just sort of holding the value isn't enough. You know, I want unity, I want peace, I'm for that, I'm, I'm for justice. But how do you actually make those things become a reality? And it's not enough just to have positive thoughts. You actually have to get out in the community. You have to work on yourself. You have to work on building a sense of community, building, I guess, capacity until ultimately you can take social action. I looked at that and I said, hold it. This is exactly exactly the type of process that's needed to bring about these profound changes. You know, we have to look at, I guess, at the level of political change, but often the political system is very corrupted because of the way it's organized. It's this very partisan system where people vie for power. We need to really look at a different type of governance, a different type of concept of power, to look at perhaps how we can serve other people rather than, than lead them. There's a kind of a whole process of change that's happening in Baha'i communities in thousands of places around the world that is really starting to build this kind of knowledge base about the process of transformation. 
So I'm saying to people, well, you don't have to be a Baha'i. And most of the people involved in this process, the Institute process, aren't even Baha'is. They're using these concepts to look at how they can change themselves and then start to change the community around them. Well, Paul, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work and your thoughts with us. Well, my pleasure. I, I love talking about these ideas. Can I put a little plug in for my book? Yeah, please. This book, 11, is available. You can get the ebook or the paperback book or the hardcover from most of the, you know, the big internet companies like Amazon and so on, and sometimes from the local bookstores and that as well. If you look on any of those internet book services, you'll likely find it out. You can look up www.11billionpeople.com, which is my website, and you can find the book from there as well, directly from the publisher. I'll also put that link on uh, on um, the uh, Baha'i Perspective website as well, Paul. Great. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, thank you, too. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paul Hanley, author of the book Eleven. You can find his work at 11billionpeople.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Bring the whole world to its knees. I've got no code to get the gold, no pride wrought the wrong. But dust is swept away by just a breeze. I don't know when this life will end for me. How to plan for a future I can't see. But choose the road where love is gold and all you. Come beating on your door. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.